Acts 23, please, verse 11. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Before we begin, let's just pray. Lord, we come before you in in your word this morning. We ask that you would speak to us from your throne room. You long to teach us. You long to guide us and direct us and comfort us and correct us and all those things, Lord. That we would have life, abundant life here on the earth. And then eternal life in eternity with you. Teach us your ways. Teach us how to live in your house, Father. Show us... um, just through your word, what's going on in our hearts. Address those deep issues within us. Teach us, Lord. Show us your your path and your light. Give us ears to hear. Give us understanding. Let us not be content with milk all our days, Father. Help us to grow in you and grow in love and kindness and long-suffering and wisdom and patience and all the attributes that you displayed in your son. Help us to be merciful. Help us to endure during trial and tribulation. Help us to love deeply, Lord. To not withhold. To not let our love grow cold. So just open our, our hearts and our minds. I'm just asking that for this fellowship, Lord, this time this morning. And glorify yourself in your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Paul here in Acts chapter 23, 11 through 24, is where we're we're headed today. Paul's in the custody of the Romans in Jerusalem after two riots broke out. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in the middle of a riot. I have not. I've been in concerts that are close to riots, but that's about the closest I can get. And the first riot happened because the Jews from the province of Asia who had seen Paul's work they were there all gathered in Jerusalem. They had, they had said that they saw him there in the temple, uh, not in the temple, but on the outsides of the temple grounds with some Gentiles he was bringing, obviously, and they, and they just freaked out. And they accused him of two things, that he preaches against the law of Moses, and secondly, that he brought a Gentile into the inner courts. And so when they stirred up the crowds and said these things were happening, a riot happened, and they grabbed Paul and started to try to kill him, basically. And that was in chapter 21, where the Romans came down when they heard about it. They had a fort attached to the temple grounds, and they rescued Paul. And as Paul's being pulled out, uh, he he was innocent of both those accusations. He wanted to reach the crowd and preach the gospel to him, as Paul does in these amazing situations. And so in chapter 22, uh, he's, he's given the ability, before he gets pulled into that fort, to address the crowd by this captain And so Paul goes ahead and he starts building a bridge with them. He relates to them. He starts, gives his testimony. He testifies of the risen Jesus. And then he says that this risen Jesus sent them to the Gentiles. And when he said the word Gentiles, they lost it again. And it got so intense, they had to pull them right inside. And so this Roman commander is 
is trying to get to the bottom. He's trying to get information. People are saying a bunch of things. And so the, be- the best way that Romans get information out of people is they beat it out of them. And so they take Paul, and they're about to flay him with a cat of nine tails, which is what Jesus experienced. And, G- and, and Paul said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. And immediately they stopped because two things. One, if you even bind a Roman citizen without due process, um, that was a big problem in their legal system. And if you beat a Roman citizen, if you, if you, uh, you know, executed punishment on a Roman citizen, you could, whoever did that would be responsible with their own lives. So they took justice very seriously in many ways. And so uh, the next day, the Roman commander, he's, he's still seeking to get to the bottom of all of this, and he calls the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish leaders, together to bring their charges against Paul. And this is the first kind of court that's convened. And if you guys, if you know anything about uh, the legal system, you start local. And then if that doesn't work out, you go to the next, to the next, to the next. You can appeal all the way to the Supreme Court. So the rest of Acts is Paul working himself through the Roman justice system. That's what's going on. All the way to Rome and where he appeals to Caesar. And so he will appear to the, uh, uh, kind of go all the way up the, the, the rungs there until he gets to Caesar, who will eventually kill him. And Paul essentially tells them here, and as he's focused on this local level, that um, he's just, he's there to testify of the resurrection of the dead. And as you know, those two groups within the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they saw theology differently. And instead of shaking hands and parting and have a proper debate, they went nuts. And they almost killed Paul again, and they had to pull him out for fear that he was going to be torn apart by these people because one group believed in the resurrection, one group did not. And so these Pharisees and Sadducees are uh, incredibly religious, and they are incredibly evil men. Not saying all of them, but most of them, um, as we will see. And so after all this, Paul's sitting in the barracks, and he's downhearted, he's discouraged, and the people, the Jews he wanted to reach so desperately um, that he would gladly trade places in eternity with them, as Romans tells us, uh, they wouldn't listen. And he's discouraged, and we know this because of verse 11 in chapter 23, where it says, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And that's where we left off. Jesus standing by and speaking to Paul in his hour of need. Paul is imprisoned by the Romans. He's hated by the Jews. It looks pretty bad until Jesus speaks. How many of you need to have Jesus speak with Romans all around you and Jews at your heels, so to speak? Anybody? That's where the words of life are. That's where our encouragement comes from, encouragement above encouragement from the words of Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church, and we are sustained by every word he says. That's what feeds us. That's what causes us to grow. That's what causes us to truly be encouraged, truly grow, truly abound, is, is his spiritual word in us. And so Paul, he says three things to Paul. First, he speaks to the issue of Paul's heart. Paul's experiencing discouragement and he's, dis, he's experiencing fear. And Jesus tells him uh, to cheer up, take courage, Paul. And we talked about how many times throughout the scriptures that, that that's what Jesus, what God, 
<laughs> you want Old Testament, right? He puts it all the way through to all his people again and again and again. Do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Take courage, take courage, take courage. Do not be dismayed, do not. And just over and over and over and over. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he's speaking authoritatively, do not be afraid. What do you think about that? That's pretty cool. That's what Paul needed to hear. So he speaks to the heart. And secondly, he encourages him when he says, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you have testified with me about Jerusalem. How many of you feel like, man, that was a big failure? I love Jesus. Even when he's correcting in, in Revelation, he says, you know, this I, you know, this I have against you. Before he gets there, he says, you've, all, you've done these great things. See, I don't want you to think I don't see those things, but this I have against you. But he does encourage us with truth, amen? And so I love that. He says, you have encouraged me. You know, and some people think he was out of line by going to Jerusalem. Some people don't. I think he was right in the middle of God's will. Um, either way, Jesus says, you have testified of me. Great job. You know, and that must have been encouraging, even though he didn't get very many words out. Cheer up. Don't fear. You've, en- you've encouraged me. Now, and the third thing um, that the Lord Jesus says to Paul is he gives him hope. He gives him hope. I love that about the Lord. He says, as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you're going to testify in Rome. We've got things to do. There's something in the future for you. There are plans that I have for you. There's things that are going on that I want you to experience. And, and the glorious thing about the Lord is, is quite often when he says it, somehow I remember it happens. Anybody else? And Jesus kind of just has that effect on life in the universe in every single circumstance that ever was or is. Jesus, he, uh, he uh, totally has control over everything. But this is how the word can often sustain us in difficult times. This is how the word of God interacts with our lives, the word. Are you in some sort of prison today? Are you surrounded by Romans this morning? Uh, Does it feel like your demise is imminent? Anyone? Do you feel like a failure? Are you discouraged? Where do you go with that? Where do you go with your discouragement? Where do you go with your failure? Where do you go with your fear? It's amazing what our culture goes to. It's amazing what we as human beings are told to go to. Go to the source. You know, how tempting it is to go to those different wells for that instead of the well that will quench our thirst. Go and drink from the word of God, you know, and see that your soul will not be quenched in the waves of the trials we put into perspective. That's what we need. The word, the truth of Jesus Christ flooding our minds, counterbalancing the circumstances of life. Amen? How we need the word of God to dwell in us richly, deeply. The words of Jesus, our head, our spiritual food, and our drink. The only thing that's going to truly satisfy our souls. That's it. Verse 12, picking up today's text. The next morning, some of the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed. They went on the Jerusalem diet. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. 
They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of, of wanting more accurate information about this case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. Now, Jesus had just told Paul, what did he say? That he would testify of me in Rome. And what's the very next thing that happens? The Lord said, you're going to the other side. You're going to go there. That's God's plan for Paul. But what do we see? Satan also has a plan. Did you not know that? Satan immediately, immediately counteracts God's plan for Paul with some kind of scheme, and he uses all sorts of junk. Anybody else experience that? This is, and, and obviously it's not saying it, but if you were to do a Job situation and roll the screen back, you would see satanic forces influencing this council, these people, and all these things to try to thwart God's plan for Paul, to testify of him. And in this case, we see more than 40 men have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Paul has an enemy that is seriously dedicated toward his destruction. And they are willing to sacrifice food and water until they get it done. That's a serious enemy, friends. Not only that, they're conspiring with the chief priests and elders. And we know from verse 20 that they went, those chief priests and elders went along with it, which we'll read in a minute. And so here Paul is encouraged, and he's given hope by the Lord Jesus. And right on the heels of that, we see there's a group of 40 guys dedicated to killing that plan, killing Paul, and that are conspiring with those Jewish leaders. And on top of that, Paul is a prisoner of the Romans. Not very fun. So the circumstances look bleak. Put yourself in that prison. Remove the information you have from the book of Acts. What's your plan? Jesus speaks to you in the night. He says, hey, this is what my, my plan is for you. And yet, you're surrounded by Romans. You've got Jews plotting against you and all this stuff. How's God going to work that out? How's God to work that out? How's that work out? Show me the plan, God. Give me the big picture. And that's what we always want to know in life. How is God going to work things out? How is it going to end up? Like what's, what, how are you going to make your promises sure? I don't know about you. I ask those things quite often. I think less and less sometimes. But it says in verse 16, when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. <laughs> and then Paul called on one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. And so lo and behold, God has a person on the inside. What do you know? Paul's nephew. God's got people. That is, it, anyways, we, we, we don't know much about Paul's family. I don't know much about Paul's family. We, we know that Paul just said he was the son of a Pharisee in chapter 23, verse 6. He was related to a family of Pharisees, Right? When Paul said he counted everything lost for Christ in Philippians 3.8, this most likely included being cut off from his family, perhaps his wife, we don't know, people speculate. 
but somehow Paul's nephew just happened to be in the right place at the right time and hear the plot and even have the desire in the midst of all that political stuff to go to his estranged uncle perhaps or, or whatever it might be and to actually tell him of the plan. Little boy, the word here, young man. So how is God's plan going to be accomplished in Paul's life? With the odds and all the things that are going on. What we're seeing here is God's divine providence. His divine providence. We used to have language like that in our nation because we understood it. And we rested on it. And we expected it. Providence. God had told Paul, you're going to be my witness in Rome. And the facts are that he's in a prison. He's got people out to kill him. And they aren't going to eat until it happens. How is Paul going to, to Rome? God works in two ways, people. Two ways. Two general ways. The first is through miracles. The second, through providence. This is kind of how we see God operate in the scriptures and in nature. Uh, miracles are when God intervenes the natural order of things and breaks the laws of nature. You know, and we like when people are miraculous healed, healed by him speaking to them. When the winds and the waves calm down immediately at, the, at his voice. When the crippled are healed. When the deaf hear. Um, when demons are cast out. There is a, is an, those are miracles that happen. And quite often, we are praying for miracles, right? We want God to supernaturally jump in, break the laws of nature, and just absolutely do it. And and by the way, God is totally, 100% free to do so at any time He wants to. Praise the Lord. That's what makes Him God, right? And it's not like He has to work up a sweat doing it. And God is obligated to do that Whenever he wants, he just does it when he it's, it meets his will. And quite often in Scripture, when I see it, it's when there's a supernatural block to the gospel, when Jesus' line was in was in trouble, when the lineage of Jesus was in trouble through the Old Testament, as you're looking at, and so he supernaturally, you know, uh, is is intervening at certain times in Scripture. I'm not saying that he doesn't do that, but I see we see that a lot in the Old Testament. There's a reason behind why he did what he did. The New Testament is the furtherance of the gospel all throughout. So God can work miracles any time. But the other way that God most often works is through divine providence. This is, this is how God usually works. We don't want to limit God in any way, but we, we see that God works through divine providence, providence. And the definition basically is that would be God ordering natural events, events in such a way that his will is accomplished. God orders natural events in such a way to where his will is accomplished. It's all his anyways. (laughs) It's not like anything's happening without him knowing it. But the other way uh, is miracles. But we're talking about divine providence. And And the Bible's full of examples of God ordering natural events to accomplish his will. It's really no big deal for him. And in so just a few stories. The, the story of Ruth that comes to mind. Ruth is from Moab. 
She's married to a man who moved over with Naomi. Uh, sorry, uh, Naomi and her husband moved over to Moab, had sons. Ruth married one of those sons. Uh, both Naomi's husband and all the sons died. They're both widows. They decide to go back to Israel because Ruth says, you remember the verse, your people are made people and, my, uh, and your God is my God. And as they are going there, they are standing, uh, you know, just poor widows with nothing and the law of God provided to where they're able to go into fields and the farmers, what they had to do by law is when they were collecting, if they dropped something in harvest, they left it on the ground. That was their welfare system. So people worked for their food. And if you didn't go out and collect it, you didn't eat. Pretty amazing. They left the corners of the fields. They were to leave the corners of the field. They had to go out and harvest it. And so Ruth decides they're hungry. They're going to go eat. And in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, it says, And so she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvester. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. She didn't know whose field she was in. It just so happened, as it turned out, that she was in his field. She would go on to marry Boaz, Boaz and Ruth, who Boaz was required by law to be a kinsman redeemer. I don't want to get into that right now. But they would have some children, and their great-great-grandchild is King David. God's ordering events. It just so happened that she came along the field. No, it didn't just so happen. God was leading and guiding and quite often we only realize that after we've been through something, we realize God's been at work. What about Moses? All the Hebrew children were to be killed in order, in, in, at the order of the Egyptians. Remember that? Yet Moses was placed in a basket by his mom and shoved out into the Nile River with crocodiles and everything. Oh my. Imagine what faith that must have taken. Well, heartbreak. And as he pushed it out, the daughter... Um, followed it to see where it would go. And it just so happened that who was, who decided to come take a bath? Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter looked in the basket and said, this must be one of the Hebrew women. Why don't you go find out one of the Hebrew women to nurse it for me? So they went and found, lo and behold, Moses' mom. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? What are the odds? 100%. God is divinely orchestrating things. You know, in my own life, uh, God put a, a desire when I was leading worship at Palomar Christian Church um, in, in San Marcos. Uh, man, I just desire to teach God's word. I've been leading worship up to that point. And it was just a, a heavy desire in my heart. And so I had to step out in faith. I said, okay, you know, pastor, I, I'm going to, this is where I feel like God's leading me. And so in this many months, I'll be taken off. I'll raise up someone, and then off I went. I interviewed at a place and came down, and God said no. And then in the meantime, I didn't know it, but that pastor decided he was going to go take a church back east. And then that elder board ended up calling me and saying, will you please come back here and teach right where you left? The Moses basket situation. I mean, God just kind of, he, his providence is, is evident, you know? And so like when we're looking at the well and things like that, I just trust him to work things out for his glory. He's gonna do it in his time and his way. And we just need to rest in his goodness in those matters. And so what are the odds? 
that Paul is surrounded here, that his nephew's going to come and all these things happen. He's at the right place, right time. They're 100%. God's at work. And this is often how God works. I love miracles, but I'm always fascinated at God's providence. It's evidence that he's working. The world says, oh, that's a coincidence. No, that's, that's the Lord. Over and over. And this becomes the natural life of a Christian. How many of you are kind of almost callous to his providence? I mean, you just see it happening every day, all the time, as you start growing in the Lord, and he just opens up your eyes to him moving all the time. And you're like, wow, praise the Lord. You know, and it's exciting, and it's neat. But God works supernaturally, naturally, all the time. I love that. It's usually not birds dropping meat from the sky. When we're hungry, it's usually... He provides work for us. Or he puts it on the, someone who, within the body of Christ, on their heart, and all of a sudden they just show up at your door with a, a thing of, of groceries. You know what I'm just saying? It's like he's at work. And yes, I would encourage you to, I just want you to encourage, I want to encourage you to think uh, deeply about God's divine providence in your life today. You know, you might be, in the Roman barracks, surrounded by death, there might not seem like a path forward, but trust in the Lord. Lean into his word. Read the stories of how he works. Fill your heart and mind with these things, not the things you're hearing, not the circumstances. Fill your mind with these things and rest in him. Trust in his everlasting loving kindness. And, and, and you might not see him working at this moment. You might only see Satan's schemes, Right? But rest assured, Christ is mindful of you and has a plan, and his plan will go forward through miracles or divine providence. But so, verse 18, he took the commander, the centurion, uh, sorry, he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. And the commander took the young, uh, the young man by the hand, we know he's little, uh, and drew him aside and asked him, what is it you want to tell me? And he said, some of the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. He has a great vocabulary, by the way. Don't give, it, <laughs> don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They're ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. Verse 22, the commander dismissed the young man with this warning, do not tell anyone that you have reported to this, me, this to me. This commander did not get his job by mistake. He was a pretty wise guy. He's dealing with insurrection. He's dealing with uh, a Paul's life, his life. If you lose a Roman citizen's life, that's a big deal. And also uh, the life of this little boy, he's, he's having to maneuver a lot of political waters here. And we see he's using a lot of wisdom. So he tells this little boy not to do anything. Don't, I mean, don't tell anybody. And he wants the Sanhedrin to think he's unaware of their, of their plan, most likely so that he can get Paul out of town in that night. That seems what he's doing here. Verse 23 says, Then he called two of his centurions. Centurions were over 100 soldiers. Obviously, they're going to be over more right here. And he ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. 
Brothers and sisters, God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whatever he wants. Can he not? God's plan is going to go forward in Paul's life. Nothing's going to stop that. And God, in his provision, he uses the full force of the Roman government in Jerusalem to make sure that happens. I love that. How about that? The very institution uh, you know, that's imprisoning Paul, God uses to protect and guide Paul towards his destination. Isn't that weird? I love that. 200 soldiers. These are guys who have the shields, and they would take those shields and the short swords, and they would have the phalanx, and they would all put those shields together. So they were hand-to-hand combat guys. Then they, that was 200 of those guys. 200 spearmen would stand behind them and, and chuck the spears over there in you know, kind of a medium-range thing. Then he had 70 ca- uh, Cavalry. Oh, I said cavalry because I'm from Calvary. You know, cavalry. <laughs> it's 70 uh, cavalry guys on horseback. I put, even put a capital V in there. It doesn't work. Um, but, you know, the point is, when God says you're going to Rome, you are going to Rome no matter what's going on. Amen. And I can see those 40 guys lying in wait and being totally bummed as as 470 soldiers come out and Paul's in the middle and they're like, oh man, there goes my meal ticket. You know, they're just, they're going to be hungry for a long time. You know what I'm saying? That is going to be bad. Dumb vow. They're kicking themselves. You know, I was reading Proverbs chapter 2 last week, not this past Friday, but the previous Friday with John and we were driving, and he was reading, don't worry. And uh, he was driving, I was reading. No. But verse 7 and 8 says, he, he holds success in store for the upright. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. And he's, that's true for Paul at this moment. The Lord is a shield, and he protects those whose walk, who walk in his wisdom. I love that is the point. And how he protects and how he guides is amazing to see. In Paul's case, the Roman army escorting him to Governor Felix in Caesarea, some 40 miles away. Verse 25, let's roll through this. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, this is the commander, the commander over a thousand there. He writes this letter. He says, to his excellency, Governor Felix. Governor Felix was a rat. And so just know that. And so there's pleasantries here in his writing. And it's not just my opinion, it's everybody on earth's opinion. So uh, to His Excellency Governor Felix, this man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Notice he left out that he had him bound and was about to flay him, and then that's how he found out. (laughs) Oh, I rescued him, I kicked the door down, and uh, he's a Roman. I love that. Embellishments in writing. Verse 28, I wanted to know why they were accusing him. And so I brought him to the Sanhedrin, and I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. And you're going to see this over and over and over and over in the trial. Verse 30, when I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once, and I I also ordered his accusers to present you to their case against him. And so pretty straightforward assessment with a little emphasis on being a Roman and rescuing him. Uh, 
verse 31, and so the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipartus, Patras. And the next day they left the cavalry, uh, they let, let, let the cavalry go on with him uh, while they returned to the barracks. So those 200 soldiers and the 200 spearmen only went a part of the way because the geography is really windy around Jerusalem. You're going down the mountain, so to speak. And, and then there was, a, there was an outpost there. The soldiers went that far. And the rest is plains out to the coast. And I'm kind of picturing it in my head, but uh, it's plains out to the coast. It's just a, it's a straight shot. So you could have Paul in that group of horses. And so that's what was going on. They took him the rest of the way. In verse 33, when, when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. And the governor read the letter and asked what providence he was from, learning that he's from Cilicia, a Roman province. You're, I, can, I can govern this, and I can, I can do this because you're in a province of Rome. He said, I will hear your, your case when your accusers get here. And then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. And so not only did God providentially supply safe passage, but he puts Paul up in the governor's mansion. And that's what that is. Herod had that great, built great temples in one of his great temples, one of his great palaces, I mean, was on the coast there. And so Paul got to stay at the governor's place. God knows how to encourage, doesn't he? From the prison to the palace in one day or two. So, church, uh, God is providentially working out his will all around us. You know, our role is to be his men and women in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Surrounded by Romans, plots against your life, a hostile environment, bleak circumstances, we trust in the Lord. Amen? So church, you know, I, I just want to share with you personally, I've had my own difficulties as of, as of late. Um, uh, went to the doctor last week and found I have a, I have a tumor in my testicle. So I'm just kind of, we're all adults here. Um, and so tomorrow morning I'm going to go and have surgery and have that removed. And so most likely they say it's going to be cancerous and all that stuff. So I got Romans around me. I got Jews at my door, 40 years old. I got a life and a family and, and you guys. And you know what I'm saying? This is not Bible. This is life. This is real stuff. You know, so... Christine and I, we've had those hard times this past week, but you know, the Lord Jesus has stood by us in his grace, and he says, he's telling me um, that, you know, he's with me. He spoke that to me, said, I'm with you. And then he said, it's not going to do, he's going to do something to glorify himself through this. And he's telling me to praise him now in the midst of the storm. You know, I want to read a devotion, just the latest example of God speaking to me. I've been in his word every day, and he's speaking to me in scriptures and all these things. Um, but I also read a devotion by John Corson, which is, which is, which is a, a real encouragement. But it was for June 11. It says, in the verse it was, Exodus fifteen twenty one, King James, And Miriam answered and said, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously, for the horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. John Corson, Pastor John Corson, Applegate Fellowship in Oregon. 
He says, as good as this song is, how much better would it be, would it have been, had it been sung before the Red Sea parted? Had it been sung by the children of Israel before they were rescued? To you who are boxed in, with your back to the Red Sea, this is your moment. Now is your opportunity for greatness. When he says greatness, it's not self-greatness. It's, it's to glorify the Lord. You see, once the Red Sea parts, once the financial crisis is over, once the relationship is restored, the disease is healed, you will no longer have before you the opportunity for greatness. Then you can be grateful, but only now can you be great. When the hour is dark, when nothing was externally right, there in the middle of a black, bleak night, what did Paul and Silas do? They sang songs of praise. And so intriguing was this to their fellow prisoners that when an earthquake caused the prison doors to open, they chose to stay in the dungeon with Paul and Silas rather than to flee, to remain imprisoned physically in order that their soul might be set free. So too, you who are in the dungeon financially, relation, or psychologically have a unique opportunity to show us greatness. And once this experience is over, you'll never have the same opportunity again. I want to be like David, we say. I want to grab some stones and nail, nail Goliath. You can. There's a huge giant before you, a giant headache, a giant heartache, a giant problem. Are you going to be like Saul and his men, murmuring and complaining, depressed and discouraged? Or are you going to praise the Lord in the face of the giant who seems to stomp up and down the valley of your life every day? Anyone got one of those? 99% of people will choose to be like Saul. This is your chance, however, to be a David. The difficulties in the lives of any great man or woman in scriptures weren't pleasant. They weren't easy. We know how their story ends. Joshua, Deborah, Gideon, Jeremiah, David, Paul, but they were living out their stories. Their trials were every bit as brutal as your situation. Yet they chose by God's grace to be great, to be heroic. And we, at the ri- when we are the richer for it. When there's an ugly giant before you or prison bars all around you, it's your chance to be great. Don't miss it. Because although opportunities for greatness come to everyone, they usually only come once or twice in a lifetime. Will your story be one of mediocrity or one of greatness? It all depends on what you do this side of the Red Sea. He speaks in the night. Church, you need Jesus. You need his word in your life. Repent. Cut out the crud. Run to him. Flood your mind with his word. Everything you're going for is vanity. Fill him with, fill your heart and your mind with him. Let him stand by you. Let him speak to you and guide you in everything. Let him pour out to you. Because when it comes, it's, it's, it's heavy and hard, and I know so many of you have been through it time and time again. Might be my first time around. Might be my last. Jesus. He's alive. He's real. He comes off the pages. He stands in the night. He speaks to our hearts. Praise him in the prison. Trust him in the pit and rest in his divine providence. Amen? If the Lord wills it, I'll be very tender and sitting next to you next Sunday. (laughs) 
Until then, uh, you know, we keep testifying of the resurrection of Jesus Christ through our lives and our words. Don't be ashamed. It's your opportunity. The Egyptians are watching. Wherever else he may lead you, in whatever circumstances, and whatever opposition we face, praise him, worship him, testify of his, that he's alive, and he's alive in you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, want to thank you for your providence. Thank you that we see time and time again in everybody else's life through Scripture that you work all things together for those for the good, for those who love you. And there's a lot more to that. Lord, you're you're calling us to sit and to rest, and to worship in whatever storm we're in, and just to allow you to orchestrate the circumstances around us, and to move when you tell us to move. But Lord, to cast our cares to you, to drop those weights at your feet, sometimes every 10 minutes. We ask for your divine providence upon this body, upon this church. You are the chief shepherd. You are the pastor of this church. You lead, you guide, you protect, you just lead us, Lord Jesus. We all look to you. Give us your word in the night and in the morning and in the, in the noonday, Lord. And just uh, fill our, our hearts with faith. Help us to love you deeply and to love one another. We want you to glorify yourself. Glorify yourself more and more in our lives through whatever means necessary. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.